Anybody have notes out there? Anybody need notes? They should have them close to you there. Anybody else need notes? Got a young guy over here that needs some, Brother Bill. You may not have, there, there's the hands. We got some right up here. Okay. Get your, if you get your notes, and yeah, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 1 to get started tonight. Genesis chapter 1. We started talking about worldviews last week. And the first component of a biblical worldview is the existence of God. And so we covered that last Sunday night. And if you'd like to uh, get the CD on that, just see Brother Chuck, or you can get it right off the website, download it, or it's on iTunes. And one should be able to keep up. Genesis chapter 1. And let's read in verse number 24 as we get started tonight. And God said, Let the earth bring forth a living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Now one thing that you notice about creation and, uh, and about science itself is that God revealed to us right in the creation story about his classification system. And we don't know if God has a genus and species the way that, that we do it, but certainly God classified things according to their kinds. And here's what we've found over centuries and, and millennia. Um, within their kinds, species evolve. That's called microevolution. But... Cross kinds or cross species have never evolved. That's called macroevolution. It has never happened. Okay? Most of the study that old Chuck Darwin did way back when in the 1860s, he wrote a lot of things about microevolution that scientists since then have taken and distorted to be about macroevolution. Now, Darwin was obviously a Darwinist. Okay, he was kind of the he was the second father of evolution. The first one was a guy named Satan. Um, but but anyway, so Darwin he yeah he came up with the concept. But people have taken macroevolution now into every area of science to say that the universe came about by a process of evolution through a big bang of a gaseous explosion. We don't know where the gas came from, but it created the universe and the stars. What an amazing thing, right? It didn't create it, it evolved it, sorry. But they've got, got all these ideas. So, right in Genesis 1, in God's story, in His story, you can see what happened. And verse 26 is very foundational for several reasons. The first is this, and God said, let us. So it shows the Trinity. Um, it shows that God is a Godhead, Elohim. Let us make man in our image. Okay, so, so the last thing that was going to be created during creation was going to be mankind. And they were going to be special because they were going to be made in the image of the Godhead, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And tonight we're going to talk about the character of God. Father, would you bless us tonight as we talk about a biblical worldview. And I pray that it wouldn't just be a, a lesson for our knowledge, but that it would be a truth that we actually live. That a biblical worldview would not be some theory that we buy into or some religious experience that we know about, but it'd be what we actually practice in our lives each day. That we might display the character of our Creator, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives this week. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In your notes, God could have come up with any design for man. This is honest truth. God could have made us to look like the platypus. God could have made human beings to look like the kangaroo. God could have made us to look like the sloth. But he made us in a different way than any part of his creation. And I always get a kick out of uh, the stories that come up about how some new fossil has been found that now proves another link between apes and man. And it's just crazy how that's happened. In fact, um, some of the ones that you had when you went to school back in your, your book were actually made up. They were made up names. They were made up fossils. Um, one of the f- most famous ones, the Nebraska man, actually came from the jawbone of a, of a pig. And uh, it was formulated that this, there was this thing that had been found that was the missing link between apes and man, and they did a drawing for it, and, and uh, that's why all these Bigfoot shows are out there. The Saskatchewan shows. How, how many of you, honest, be honest, how many of you have ever watched the Bigfoot show? All right, yep, curious. Okay, um, and why? Because if they ever find old Bigfoot, what's he going to be? He's going to be the proof of the missing link. Right? Now some of you, you go back to your high school yearbook and you look at some of the pictures and you could point to the missing link. Right? <laughs> I mean, right there is the missing link. But you know, we're talking about the character of God. So we start with this sentence. God could have come up with any design for man, but he chose one in his own image. To understand ourselves, we must first understand God. So you will never be able to answer the question, why am I here without God? God is the reason why we're here. He's the essence of everything that we do because our character and the ability to have character and personality comes directly from Him. Even your emotions come directly from God. I challenge you to do a study sometime just in the Old Testament, Jehovah God, and look at how many different emotions that God used in the Old Testament. Now you find that God got jealous, God got angry, God was sorrowful, and you find time after time where He exhibited emotion. That's where we get emotion from. Obviously, God exhibited creativity. That's where we get creativity from. God was very artsy. That's where we get artsiness from. And God was a good cook. Uh, within, within the Garden of Eden, He planted uh, the trees that could sustain them for eternity. 
And, and so we have all of these things that we do because God did. Now, um, we see this with our, with our own families. After our kind, if you have children or maybe uh, your dad or your mom or your grandparents, and uh, you know how sometimes we, we see common traits in each other? Uh, we were sitting at lunch today, and uh, the boys were messing with Sophie and, and uh, talking to her about stuff. And uh, they made her laugh, and she got this look on her face. And I told my wife, that look is from Opa. My grandfather, who passed away several years ago, that's the exact look he used to do. And uh, she never knew him, but she got that look, right? And uh, some of the looks you have, God bless you, they came from... <laughs> Now, Connie, this is not the time of service to laugh. <laughs> I mean, uh, all right, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll skip it. But, but several generations back, you know, that nose or that ear or whatever it is about you that you sometimes, where did that come from? Well, that's where it came from. Now, it all came originally back from God and His character. And so tonight we're going to see it. I want you to go to Psalm 139. And we're going to be discussing a lot of things about God's greatness tonight. And so I just want to read this psalm as we get started. One of the most beautiful psalms about God's creation and God's working in the lives of human beings. Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it all together. Even the word that you didn't say out loud, that you just kind of whispered. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Really? I mean, really? Might as well play, what does the fox say? Right in the middle of church. Okay. Verse 8. If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the outermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought on the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! 
If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men, for they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? Am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, know my heart, try me, and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And so this is a chapter that talks a lot about components of God's character that we'll cover tonight. Consider first, and this is in your notes, consider first the essence of God. Consider first the essence of God. And we say, first of all, that He is spiritual in nature. He is spiritual in nature. Jesus is speaking to the woman in the well in John chapter 4. And He says to the woman at the well, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, we talked a little bit last Sunday night as we talked about the existence of God. The part of you that connects with God is your spirit. Jesus plainly told it to Nicodemus. Now, some people have distorted this. Um, a lot of Church of Christ, some of the Church of the Brethren, have distorted the whole passage in John 3. And they, when it says you must be born again of water and of the Spirit... What they say is you have to be spiritually convinced that Jesus is God, but you're saved through water baptism. All right, so water baptism has to be a component. That's not at all what that passage is talking about. Um, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says you have to be born of the water and of the Spirit. And Nicodemus asks a question that proves the context of the whole argument. You remember what Nicodemus asked? He said, can a man... Enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Whew. That's quite a question, isn't it? I mean, you moms, think about that for a minute. Just consider that with your six foot three boy that weighs 240 pounds. Can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And obviously not. He has to be born again. He's already been born physically. Now he has to be born spiritually. And so the part of us that connects with God, that has relationship with God, is the Spirit. The Spirit that's born at the moment of salvation. And so God is spiritual in nature. Another thing. I like this one. He is alive. He is alive. God is not only the giver of life... He is life. And uh, you have to understand this is part of His essence. God is life. Pure life is through Him and by Him. And uh, He holds all things together. He makes all things consist, Colossians 1.16. Uh, let's look at another one. And this is interesting in Matthew 27. Matthew 27. This is the time of the morning of the crucifixion, early in the morning, as Jesus is brought before Pilate. 
And Pilate is trying to get Jesus released because he can't find any fault in him. And here is the question that he asks. Look at this. Matthew 27, verse number 22. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called the Christ? And of course they all say unto him, Let him be crucified. But that question... What shall I do with Jesus? That's a question that everybody has to answer. And so here's what we say about the essence of God, this final thing. His presence demands that we respond to His existence. His presence demands that we respond to His existence. Because He's the, cre- he's the creator, He's the potter, and we're the clay. Um, he, he's the one who made us. And so there's got to be a response to the fact that He's there. And we talked about some of that last week in Romans 1. So I'm not going to backtrack and cover it again. But let's move on to this second part. Consider also the greatness of God. So not just the essence of God, but consider also the greatness of God. Think of uh, what some of the largest human accomplishments are that have ever been done. Yeah, you could think certainly of, of ones from all different centuries and um, the, the Great Wall of China, um, the, the Eiffel Tower when it was built, the Suez Canal was built before heavy machinery was even around. If you ever read about when the Panama Canal was built, or the Brooklyn Bridge, or the Empire State Building, um, things that even are built now. How many of you guys uh, saw the, the feller that uh, walked across the Grand Canyon on a tightrope? Heard about that? Um, guess who made the Grand Canyon? That'd be God. Right? And so sometimes we lose context of how great God is. One of the words that have been around for 25, 30 years that people use frequently, man, that was awesome! Right? That was an awesome pizza! Um, that was an awesome candy bar. That was an awesome this. You know what's really awesome? God. And He's really the only one who is. There's not any other person or accomplishment that makes the human heart to bow down in ultimate authentic worship. Just not. God is that entity, He's that great. And so you take the greatest of the great. These things are about to kill me. I almost died on this one over here. Just do some house cleaning. That's all right. There we go. We good? Okay, what was I saying? The greatest of the great. Do you know who can beat Michael Jordan in basketball? God. Right? Do you know who can pitch faster than any pitcher who's ever pitched? God. He could do anything much better than the greatest people that we have looked at in our lifetimes. It wouldn't even be a contest. Do you know how many free throws God can make in a row? All of them. Think about that, right? Do you know how many times God could beat you in table tennis with His mind? Anytime He wants. He can do anything He wants to do. He's God. But He's chosen to exist and to coexist with man in a way that 
shows us his greatness. We actually get to get a little bit of a glimpse of his greatness. One day Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, the year that Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord and there was a vision. And the Lord was high and lifted up and sitting upon his throne and his train filled the temple. And Isaiah, what he got out of it, you know what the first three words out of his mouth were? Woe is me. Woe is me. Here, here's the thought process. If that's how great God is, I'm in big trouble. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, among a people of unclean lips. I don't even know how to speak to you, God. And when we begin to consider the greatness of God just in His creation, it's hard to even talk to Him as a personal God sometimes. When you walk outside on a starry night and look up at the vast host that He spoke into existence, and then understand that we get to speak to Him. So Isaiah 46 is where we'll go. And let's talk first about God's omniscience. His knowledge. Isaiah 46. I said last week that Isaiah is a great book of deity. And it's also a great book that shows God's sovereignty. Um, One of the things that Calvinists struggle with, and by the way, John Calvin, he didn't come around till a long, long time after theology had already been written by God. And, And so a guy asked me this morning at church, I'm just bringing this up, he said, you guys Calvinists. And I said, you know, we're Biblicists. The Bible was around before John Calvin or Arminius. It was around before any man-made or man-written or man-compiled theological system. The Bible is God's book. We're Biblicists. That's what we are. And he was asking me a few questions about it. Um, But when you get into a book that shows God's sovereignty, like the book of Isaiah, you're blown away because you say God knows everything. He knows everything. And so then you say, well, if he knows everything, how is it that we have any choice? Well, here's why. Because God balances his sovereignty with his offer to man of free will. I don't fully understand that. I I don't fully understand it. The God who knew that Paul was going to go down the road to Damascus called Paul on the road to Damascus, and Paul yielded his life to him. Right? Jesus knew the moment that you were going to fall on your knees or lay in your bed or fall on an altar and trust Him as Savior. But you still had to make the choice. And so you have to balance this Isaiah, God's sovereignty, with what Jesus said, whosoever will may come. And, and so we've got to be very careful with that balance. But Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. That's prophecy saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all 
my pleasure. Here's the deal in your notes. He knows everything that ever has been or will be. That's how much he knows. He knows everything that ever has been or will be. Go to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. Another great passage. Verse 23. Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? Next thing we want to see is this. He is anywhere he wants or needs to be whenever he so chooses. He's anywhere he wants to be or needs to be whenever he so chooses. One day he showed up to talk to a scared guy outside of a wine press threshing wheat, a guy named Gideon. One day he walked up with some angels to a tent of a guy named Abraham. God is wherever he needs to be. Later on, Joshua uh, is about to go fight this huge battle, and a guy walks up to him and he says, Joshua, Take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. Well, why am I on holy ground? Because I'm here. I'm here. I'm gone. And he says, well, wait, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And it's hard for human beings to wrap their heads around God's presence. Because God is a spirit. And he can choose to show up however he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants. Now, he prophesied 300 times in the Old Testament where he would show up, when he would show up, and how he would show up as the Messiah, and yet his own people failed to believe his prophecies. He's the God who can tell the end from the beginning. And so what more could we say? Let's look at 1 John chapter 5. We already read in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. 1 John 5 has a unique verse. And without getting too deeply into this, if your Bible does not say verse 7 in this way or in something that looks like this way, it would be a good thing to check up on why. Okay, so, so verse 7 here. Look what it says. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father... The Word, which is Jesus, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Okay, so this describes what we might call the Trinity. It's it's a word that's never used in the Bible, but it's a concept that's used in the Bible. So look at this in your notes. He is personal. God is one being represented in three unique persons. Okay, God's one being... Represented in three unique persons. There's a distinguishing element in 1 John 5. Of there's two groups of three. The one group of three is those who bear witness on the earth. The spirit and the water and the blood. But 
What some of the newer uh, scripture translations are missing is they've stretched verse 8 back up to verse 7, and they only have what bear witness, bears witness on earth listed. The three that bear record in heaven are the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, the Trinity. Okay, look at John chapter 14. This is uh, back in the Gospels, John chapter 14. And boy, I sure do love this verse. It's, uh, it's hard, once again, sometimes to wrap your brain around this. But it's true, and it's amazing. Look at this, John 14, verse number 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. We say it in your notes this way. Because of God's attributes, a measure greater than we can comprehend of His power, authority, knowledge, wisdom, presence, and personality are available to us. When Jesus ascended and He left the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to indwell His people, He placed within us, those who are His children, who have received Him as Savior, He placed within us the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, equal with God, to work in our lives. And so Jesus makes this statement and says, listen, the the person who believes in me He's going to be able to do the works that I do, and greater works than these shall he do. You know, Jesus never traveled outside of about 100 miles from where he was born. Never did. Um, Jesus never spoke in a stadium. He spoke in a lot of pastures. He fed 5,000. But when you trace church history and what his disciples did. Um, the day of Pentecost, 50 days after his ascension or after the crucifixion, and, and you begin to go through the book of Acts and you see what his disciples did and what, uh, what the early churches did. And, and even past that, you go into the 1700s and you see revivals like the Great Awakening in the United States. And you see revivals that maybe you've seen in your lifetime. Not, not many people have who are alive today seen a great revival, but God's still working, and He's working in this promise through His attributes, because He's great. Then let's consider this last part, the goodness of God. Consider the goodness of God. God is great. God is good. Let us thank Him for our food. Uh, remember that one from when you were a kid? So we, we can't, the, the one where God's great, that's hard for us. And to be around true greatness and understand what it is, that's hard for human comprehension. But we pretty much understand goodness, sort of. Let's look at it in a biblical way. So consider the goodness of God. Go back to Leviticus 11. To start on this, Leviticus 11, third book in the Bible. If you ever want to read an interesting book about how to take care of fungus in a house or how to take care of mold in your clothing, 
you should read Leviticus. Leviticus 11. Look at verse number 44. For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy. For I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any matter of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. What that means, kids, is don't collect insects. Right? If your parents need to underline that in your Bible, they could right now. Do not collect snakes. Do not collect rodents. Do not collect lizards. I'm just joking. Parents, please tell them I'm joking when you get home. Verse 45. For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So in your notes, God is holy. Part of His goodness. He alone is completely without sin or wrong motives. God's the only one. Um, God has never done evil, and He's never tempted anyone to do evil, the Bible says. He's completely holy. He's never lied. He's never thought of lying. He's incredibly, in fact, the very definition of holy. Next one, God always exhibits love. We love Him because He first loved us. We know that God is love from 1 John chapter 4. For God so loved the world, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And so God always exhibits love. There are ways that He does it, and these are ways that we should exhibit love because originally we were made in the image of God. Uh, in affection, benevolence, forgiveness, acceptance, patience, and gentleness. In fact, if you want a six-step plan to a great marriage, there it is. Uh, that's the six-step plan. It's based on God's love. Um, in fact, 1 Corinthians 13 lays this whole process out. And it, it shows what true charity is. Charity is able to do all six of those things. Show affection, show benevolence, or, or give kindness, gifts. Show forgiveness. That's a big one. Acceptance, patience, and gentleness. God is love. He exhibits love. Lamentations 3. Let's see the next one. And I'll give you a second to find this one. Lamentations is after Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. And so some of his lamentations or his cryings are listed in the lamentations of Jeremiah. Lamentations 3. This is a great passage. Verse number 22. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in Him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for Him, to the soul that seeketh Him. Yeah, you could keep reading that, but God is faithful, which means He's honest and loyal. Okay, God's never been dishonest. And God's never been disloyal. Not one time. Um, every one of His conditional promises has come true. And every one of His unconditional promises is still true. And yeah, that's how great He is. He's faithful. Here, here's one that some of you are going to envy. God is always right. 
God is always right and does what is right. If there's one thing that a lot of human beings like to be, you know what it is? We like to be right. We like to be right. And sometimes we go to such an extent to try to be right that we actually do wrong. Well, God's not in that situation at all. Not only is He always right, but He always does what's right. Psalm chapter 145. Psalm 145. Verse number 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. He's always right. Back to Psalm 102, since you're in the Psalms. Psalm 102. Verse 25. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. So creation and the Creator are two different things. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. What this passage is trying to get us to see is God was around before anything, and He'll be around for all eternity. He's going to be around. And this helps us to know that God is completely reliable. His word is unchanging. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Beautiful passage of Scripture, and this is a beautiful verse. And if you're a kid in Awana, I bet you've learned this verse before. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You know, we can be made to be like God. In fact, Romans 8 says that if we've trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, that's eternal sanctification. But you know, there's also a part of sanctification that's in the present tense. There's also a part of sanctification that's in a progressive type tense that says every day if you're a child of God, you should be becoming more like Christ. You should be showing more of the fruit of the Spirit tomorrow than you did today. And we all struggle with that. We have to confess it. We have to tell God we're sorry and we don't ever want to act that way again. But we should become more like Christ because we have Christ in us. And the Bible says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here's the last one in your notes. God is our role model in everything. God's our role model in everything. Because of His goodness, we should seek to enter into a relationship with Him since we can only be righteous through Him. The only way you will ever be any of those things we just listed is through God. The only way you'll ever be holy, through God. 
The only way you'll ever be faithful and show real love and be reliable and be kind and all the things that we're listing, it's through God. We don't have the capability to do those things on our own. In fact, if you've ever not done some of those things, that was your flesh, not the Spirit of God in you. The Spirit of God in you is becoming more like Christ every single day. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer. And then we'll all go home and eat some post-grape nuts. You guys want some post-grape nuts tonight? Post-toasties? Cornflakes? Something, right? Hey, right after we dismiss, if we can have the outreach team come up for just a minute. And if you want to know more about the outreach team, just come to a meeting and see what they're doing. Or if you want to pray for them, know what they're doing. Come, come to the meeting real quick. It's about two minutes. Just cover what's happening this week. And then we have service groups. Um, back in the coffee shop, uh, Discipleship Corner, we have a service group for those who are involved or would like to be involved in greeting or ushering uh, with our facilities and grounds and security, safety for the buildings. Um, so so if, you wanna, if you're interested in that, head back, see what they're doing. In the first room on the left down the hall, our prayer and care chain meets. And it's a fantastic group. And they send cards to people, and they send cards to people who've come for the first time. People who are sick, they go out and make visits. They take pies sometimes. They fix things. They do an incredible job with prayer and care chain. And then down the hall further, we have Awana, Sunday School. Uh, what am I missing? Kids Life, Kids Start. Anything else? So that's what service groups is. And it's every Sunday night, just right after the service, just for about 10, 12 minutes. And uh, we do it so that you can connect with those that you're doing ministry with. And I sure do appreciate all the ministry you do. Good to see Brother Ben uh, back for a full day. And uh, he, he's been uh, recovering and doing well. I want you to keep praying for him, that God will help him in the mornings. He's still having a lot of pain. Yeah, be praying that God will give him his mobility. Brother Ben, would you pray for us as we dismiss?